The GIST is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Skeptic's Guide to American History. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash GIST. It's Friday, October 17th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And now I will debut Mike's movie reviews. Just saw a movie. In fact, I just read the book. It's Gone Girl. I'm going to spoil the hell out of it. But I'm not going to spoil anything you care about. I'm not even going to tell you if she's gone. I won't even mention if she's a girl. Maybe the twists you've been hearing about is a crying game thing. Oh, damn. I just spoiled the crying game. Anyway, here are three things I want to say about Gone Girl. One thing that was so awesome, that was so great, that represents a sea change in a common depiction, a common trope, and it was this. How many times have we been watching a movie or watching a TV show, and one character will say to another, do you see what they've been saying about you on TV? Click, TV goes on. Here's the very important thing we've been saying about you right now. Click, TV goes off. How did they know the newscaster would be right there saying this stuff? So in Gone Girl, that's done via TiVo. And in fact, that little TiVo portion is even set up. If you watch the movie, it's set up beforehand before the Nancy Grace-esque character is played. The second thing about Gone Girl that I'm going to spoil So as the movie trope, that's the trope that they exploded. David Fincher does a great job giving us the DVR, taking away with that. Who knows? Maybe one day Chinese food in a movie will be eaten on a plate and not out of a carton with a picture of a pagoda on it. I dare to dream. But as they give via the medium of TV, they take it away. Because there is a scene in Gone Girl, which I won't even spoil where the scene is. I'll just say it's either on a crowded naval base in a submarine or in a casino and they're watching a news conference on TV and you can clearly hear the audio. Well, I have to tell you, the audio of the news conference would never have been played in that setting, be it casino, army base, or submarine. It was a casino. And the third thing that I'm going to spoil about Gone Girl is this. I thought the cat would be black. Like I just, I went back to the book. I read it. They never said the cat was black. I just always pictured the cat as being black. And then I realized why it can't be black because that just screams symbolism, symbolism, symbolism. So I'm thinking the depiction of black cats in bad movies is probably much higher than the blackness of cats occurs in nature. But the depiction of black cats in good movies, especially movies where things happen to people that can be characterized as bad luck, probably lower just so they don't communicate to the audience a symbol that they're not trying to communicate. Now, speaking of TV and how we use TV and experience TV. Norman Lear, the guy who pretty much defined TV, he was behind the best shows and some of the most popular shows in the 70s and 80s. Shows like All in the Family, that was his first big one. Executive Produce Sanford and Son, Maud, Good Times, The Jeffersons, One Day at a Time, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, which was underrated as spoof on soaps. He did Fernwood Tonight. He did Different Strokes. Remember, she was a character, I think, uh, what was it? The Drummond's Maid was originally a maid somewhere else. Everything was spun off in his life. Then Facts of Life came from different strokes and Little Silver Spoons. Who's the boss he was part of? So that was Norman Lear. I'll be talking to him for a while. And in the spiel, it's an Antan twig. Lopstars will be rewarded. But before that, Norman Lear. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. And now a new sponsor. It's The Great Courses. 
because the desire to learn does not stop after college. In fact, it probably stops a little bit in college, depending on how cheap the beer is. But the great courses are video and audio lectures from top professors, real professors, real experts in their fields. I'm going to highlight one course. It's the Skeptic's Guide to American History. Pretty good for GIST listeners. Professor Mark Stoller, who's a scholar, scholar, Stoller, filters through misconceptions about America's past to reveal the truth about historical events, what happened, as opposed to what we believe happened, what we're told happened, what happened in the TV movie of the week version. He shows how the perceptions affect the present. It's like a great lecture from the one professor who you made sure to go to even at nine o'clock, even after the beer was really cheap. And it's a great gift. I look at something like The Great Courses as a gift for my father or an older person in my life, and I have this awesome hack. If you buy the course on CD, you also get free access to the file, the web file, both. So you could give the CD as a present. Your dad doesn't know all about streaming, and then you stream it for yourself. So it's like two gifts in one. The Great Courses has a special offer for the Just Listener, and it is this. Order the Skeptic's Guide to American History and get 80% off the original price. But it is only available for a limited time. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gist. If you use that URL, they will credit the gist. They will give you the discount. And you'll be able to find so many courses that fit in with all the stuff we talk about on the gist. Thank you. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. Do you like TV? You ever laugh at TV? If so, you owe a debt to my next guest, Norman Lear is a guy who needs no introduction because he is the man and the brain behind some of the greatest and most important television shows in TV history, but he's also out with a new memoir, his first memoir. Even this I get to experience. Hello, Mr. Lear. How are you? I am better for being here. Oh, that's nice of you to say. So when people talk to you about their favorite moment in a Norman Lear show, I bet they often bring up Archie Bunker with Sammy Davis Jr. That's probably a big one. <laughs> probably the most. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm going to tell you my favorite Norman Lear moment. Yes. Good times. You ready? I'm ready. Tell me if you remember this. The rumor is that the upstairs neighbor is so poor she's eating dog food. And she comes down. Oh, Gertie, you didn't need to bring dessert. We got a full meal. Oh, this is not dessert. This is the main course. I'm a pretty good cook, you know. And yeah. this is my specialty, meatloaf. <laughs> And they serve a dinner, and Jimmy Walker says, Oh, uh, the Lord is my German shepherd. The Lord is my German shepherd. That is my favorite line. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have never been reminded of that before this moment. And I'm thrilled that it happened. Thanks. <laughs> I have to say, for me... Good Times was the one that got me just because of my age. And it was the first, I think the first, I might be missing a show, but the first one with the relatable character, Michael, the young brother, and, you know, Jimmy Walker, of my and general And the most generation. beautiful young woman, Thelma. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm skipping ahead to, you know, your fifth or sixth great accomplishment. But was the idea specifically with Good Times... We have to show the projects. We have to show an, uh, an intact American black family. What was the idea? 
Well, it started with uh, Esther Roll performing on uh, on Maud and uh, gaining such you know enormous credibility as an actress and a character and so forth. And we introduced her husband on one show and cast John in that role, John Amos. And they were very successful. And it's almost before the show went off the air in the East, the network was calling and saying, there's, there's a show in those two people. Yeah. Which, of course, we were planning. So it was around Esther Roll. Was uh, Jimmy Walker a huge comic or kind of a find by you guys at that time? He was kind of a find. Dynamite. Dynamite. You know, Catchphrase. three syllables yeah. uh, made him. Yeah. By the way, he contributed Dynamite. It was his doing. You know, you mentioned that Esther Roll, she was uh, Maud's maid, right? Yes. Um, in the beginning, a lot of the shows spun off of other shows. That's good strategy. Was that conscious strategy or did, did it kind it, it of It was happen? conscious yeah, strategy. Yeah. I don't know who came up with the word spinoff, but yep. we always thought of actors in, uh, in small characters in the Bush Leagues. Mm-hmm. Now, were they ready for the majors? That was the question. When you were crafting roles, would, was there a possibility even at the premiere, or even with a pilot of one show, hey, maybe this will be a breakout character for the next show and you're building a pyramid? Oh, like that, that? That, that happened. It certainly happened uh, casting B. Arthur yeah. on an All in the Family episode in which we wanted a relative. And there's nothing like a relative with an old grudge to kill somebody. <laughs> uh, we wanted her to says bring the it man, up. Says the man named Lear. <laughs> we wanted her to bring it up from the floor and across the years to smash him. And she came in as a cousin of Edith who hated the idea of her marrying Archie way back then. Yeah. Now, it seems in retrospect that these were also inevitable. I mean, they were hits. They were great hits. But was there one that didn't fire? Was there either a spinoff character that you thought the character would get their own show and it didn't quite work or a disappointment? That you well, there, there were, of course, a number of disappointments. One of those was uh, Rue McClanahan. Mm-hmm. The show opened on uh, a radio with uh, when the President Roosevelt then was saying, we have nothing to fear but fear itself in the middle of the Depression. And she was playing a poor woman, absolutely no money, who suddenly had inherited uh, a, a big farm and money and had nobody in her life at all in the middle of the Depression. So she advertised for a family. Yeah. And by the time the curtain went up in our first episode, she had a grandfather, she had a daughter, a son, and answering ads <laughs> on that first episode, answering an ad for a husband was Dabney Coleman. What was the name of that show? That was, uh, damn, I can't remember the I'm going to try to remember. I'll try to remember. Uh, Apple pie. There you go. As American as apple pie. That's what it was. So many of these shows were set in realistic settings, even settings that, especially a show like Good Times, Maud had a big, nice house with big sweeping staircase. But, you know, Good Times was set in the projects. Now, the trend, I mean, for years, for uh, 20 years, the trend has been that people want to watch TV for escapism and also to be aspirational. And there are sites, there are services, um, there, there are magazine articles, which estimate the wealth of sitcom characters' apartments. And characters mm-hmm. who are portrayed as, you know, working class people are living in apartments that are worth a million and a half dollars. Do you think that... They're getting it wrong now, or do you think that the people who cast the current characters in apartments that uh, they could never afford are, you know, taking an easy way out? What's your opinion of that? I, I think they're encouraged uh, by the network and through the network, the sponsor, to yeah. uh, deal unrealistically. If that's what they're doing, I don't know. I'm not watching enough of it to know. 
I know South Park doesn't do that. <laughs> well, uh, and sets are cheap know. on South Park, too, which is weird. <laughs> yeah, very cheap on South Park. <laughs> and the same thing is true of uh, Seth MacFarlane and, yeah. and his characters. Yeah, The Simpsons, too. Yes. And, and, I don't, and Modern Family is not playing at that level. They're playing at a different level, mm-hmm. and they're grand. I love that show. Right. Did any of your shows, in retrospect, when you look at them, do you think any of your shows got were too much of a downer, were too depressing? Oh, I don't think so at all, because I've watched uh, each and every time 250 people laughing their heads off. <laughs> yeah, because it's the humor. It's not necessarily the setting. So I wonder if the idea is right. I wonder if the idea of escapism... You know, it's Monday night. Comedies on Monday, of course, are a huge thing in the history of television. Brandon Tartikoff's idea, you come home, you want to laugh, you want to escape your troubles. The most successful creative television shows in the 80, in the 70s and through the 80s, you, had an entirely different idea. Yet why did the escapism idea win? I don't know. Well, I think uh, there was a degree of escapism watching a real family, mm-hmm. a family you can uh, uh, you, you you can accept as something or, or people who might be living next door, and dealing with their problems. It wasn't your problem; it was their problem, and uh, as severe as it might have been, it was escapism just not to be that family at that moment. I mean, there are a lot of problems in the 70s. It was a tough time. And so these... And aren't we fortunate that that, uh, here now, in 2014, we have no problems? Yeah, we've escaped that. (laughs) That's right. Well, skyjacking. Okay, so let's talk about, you know, your upbringing. Your dad was kind of a con man? Yeah, my dad went to prison when I was nine years old. It was uh, as tough as anything ever got to be in my life. And how did that affect your humor? Well, when you're nine years old, your father goes to prison, your mother's selling the furniture, the newspapers all over the place see your father on the front page with a hat over his face and his arm manacled to a detective, uh, and somebody puts their hands on your shoulder, looks into your nine-year-old eyes, and tells you you're the man of the house now. You better have a sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, or else you... You better have a sense of humor. I think that's where mine was developed. I looked up this uh, at this fool and, and thought, I'm the man of the house now in this situation. And I, I think it was the moment that I learned about the foolishness of the human condition. Did you develop uh, any anger because of that? Uh, mixed with love. You know, the, I think the love overpowered the anger. I, the word I enjoy most using for him is he was a rascal. Yeah. And he... In actuality, he was a thief yeah. and a liar. And Did you ever make amends with him? How did it uh, end with him? No, he passed before. Uh... Yeah. I mean, he was he was a larger-than-life figure who gave himself the name King, right? Yeah, yes, Herman <laughs> King Lair. And King was yeah. just an affectation. There's no... Altogether, but he insisted he was born with it. Yeah. When was your first piece of writing or piece of performing where other people said, hey, this is good and encouraged you? Well, I, when my uh, parents turned, uh, when their 15th anniversary came up, mm-hmm. um, my dad asked me to write. He got a little gift from my mother, and he asked me to write a poem for her that would be his. And I wrote about my 15 years with, uh, I've spent with you with the best in life can view or something. And it hung in the vestibule. For all the years we lived in that house, my mother had put it in a frame. This was in Chelsea, Massachusetts? And it was in the first episode of All in the Family, Archie gave Edith a Gillette razor, a mm-hmm. Lady Gillette. <laughs> the way she opened it and said, ooh, a Lady Gillette. And uh, this poem, the same poem. Wow. 
And so then when you um, started running your own shows and becoming an executive producer in the book, there's a lot of mention of the people who worked with you and the people who worked under you. And you gave birth to a lot of great comedians. To this day, what are some of the most gratifying things that some of these uh, people say to you? Well, largely from, uh, you know, African-American mm-hmm. uh, people who stopped me in the street and, and become friends. But so many have said that they were raised on this show. This was the first time the family got together and saw themselves playing scenes with which they were familiar. It encouraged everything in their lives. And that's very gratifying. So we were talking before, a show that you love now is what? Well, I've, been, I've only watched two episodes of a show called Transparent. Yeah. And I think I'm watching one of the great performances of all time in Jeffrey Tambor's version of that character who yeah. who in his mid-50s decides to come out having felt like a little girl since his fifth birthday. He is now with, with three grown children. Amazing performance. It does not surprise me that you would like that because, you know, Maud had an abortion and the Jeffersons was about anti-miscegenation and one day at a time was about a single working mom. I mean, this would be the thing that you'd be exactly on the cutting edge of what our anxieties are and what society is talking about and trying to make it funny. Well, you know, I'm a, uh, I, I'm a fan of progress. I like that these things that have been lurking within us that we have not cared to face or talk about or realize and accept it are, you know, blooming. Yeah. Uh, that's the nature of progress. And now here's my last question on the cover of the book. I don't want it to be your last question. My just last question me. Just for you. This my not, that's it. I'm done. Uh, <laughs> I've reached the apotheosis of interviewing. Here in almost all these pictures, as you're depicted on South Park, cover the book and right here before me, this hat. What style is it? What can you tell me about the hat? I can tell you this. I was a great, great long while ago. I was writing only, not producing, not directing. I wasn't out and about. I was in a study writing and picking my head for no reason I would know, but uh, I had a uh, scar from uh-huh. picking my head. My wife walked in one day and tossed a hat on my head and said, don't take that off. And uh, I loved the hat. I, I started to wear it all day, and then I started to wear it out. Uh, and uh, I haven't had it off except when I sleep, I think in some 40-odd years. When you say the hat, is there one hat? There's been several iterations. No, there was one hat. I lost it on the beach in Mexico, horseback riding with one of my older children, then one of my young children. Two days later, my wife and I were in Paris, and above Lavin, I will never forget, uh, was a hat maker. Yeah. And she drew, she sketched this little hat for me, and the hat maker made this little white hat. Because he made it, I was able to order six more. So there were seven. Yeah, I'm down to three now. Three, three now. And now, yeah. how many years? Uh, how many years did it take to go through the four you've been through? Oh, a good forty odd years. Okay, so that's good. You'll live so to 120. Yeah, got, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Norman Lear is the author of even this. I get to experience and the producer of like most TV shows. Thank you, Norman. Thank you, Mike. I couldn't have enjoyed it more. 
And now the latest development in Living Longer brought to you by Prudential Financial. The idea of greater life expectancy often conjures up fears of overpopulation, a lot more of us fighting over resources and further degradation of the natural world. But a lot of scientists and philosophers are more optimistic about this. For one thing, the same kinds of technological advances that help us live longer and healthier lives are also leading to innovations in sustainability. Plus, the longer we live, the more we're personally invested in a healthy planet for ourselves and our children. Instead of passing the buck to future generations, people who live longer may even have more incentive to stop environmental catastrophe before it starts. If you'd like to read more about this and other fascinating longevity research, visit slate.com slash living longer. The Living Longer Project is sponsored by Prudential. And now the spiel. A hero will rise, a lobstar will be lobbed. It's the antan twig. What's an antan twig? It comes from the old English word for 21. It describes a three-week period like Fortnite, describes a two-week period. Like Inagata de Vida meant the Garden of Eden. Maybe, maybe not. A lot of drugs back then. It is the time we issue corrections for instances of my verbal misdirections, and then we award a lobstar. If not the highest order a podcast can bestow, then at least in line with the order of Prince Yaroslav the Wise, the Ukraine's, I think it's the third highest order. But first, enlisting wrestlers professional, I referenced a Ken Pantera, and not the actual Ken Patera, conflating my former Pan American game winning shot putters who became professional wrestlers with the Austin American based metal band whose 1992 A Vulgar Display of Power could also be said to describe the wrestler whose name I bungled. Now, normally one letter off. Does that rise to an antan twig correction? Normally, no, because that would create a multi-car pileup of garbled consonants during the I-95 interchange that is each antan twig. But I make an exception in this case. Listener Jerry Brammer says that Darren Patera, Ken's nephew, is a friend of his, and that Darren Patera will become a listener if I correct the Patera surname. So there you go, sir. Also, Ken Patera, like the Magnificent Morocco, like Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, was an intercontinental champion, not an international champion. They were all champions, intercontinental all. Also, not a correction, but on Monday I said that Turkish intransigence was beginning to grate in U.S. eyes. That, I think that qualifies as a mixed metaphor, or maybe it's a Louis Bunuel film. Anyway, I'm going to call it art and move on. And now this isn't a correction, but I wanted to let you in on, let's call it process. So normally we tape interviews longer than what airs. Sometimes we tape for 10 minutes, the interview will be seven. Sometimes we could go, I mean, I think I just went over a half hour. That's going to be like an 11 minute interview. It happens, no set ratio. And it's not a failing. It allows me to ask questions that might have no point or to just pick the best stuff to get past mis conceptions on my part, right? Like I'm not getting something, I'm not getting something. And then the guest explains it to thick-headed me. And I'm like, oh, you're not endorsing the use of heroin. You're praising heroines. Ah, I got it. So the condensed form is what airs. But sometimes what needs to be cut out is me talking too much. Have you noticed this? That I will sometimes ask a question that resembles in form and length the preamble to the Constitution? So over the past few weeks, I found myself ordaining and establishing what I thought was an interesting point. First, I will tell you what the point was. Here's part of a conversation I had with Slate's John Dickerson. Kay Hagan, a Democrat in trouble uh, for fighting for her life in North Carolina, 
in a recent debate said, of course, it was obvious the president should have armed the Syrian rebels. Well, it was not obvious at the time. But the fact that that has now become conventional wisdom suggests that the options in foreign policy are very easy and very cut and dried, and that the president just totally blew it in this case. Yeah, we need to do something. And when I think about the, the arming the rebels, you know, let's say that you select the right rebels, and let's say that you actually get them their arms, and let's say that they don't uh, fall beholden to these guys who are now the bad rebels, and let's say they actually beat uh, Bashir al-Assad, and let's say then their government is better than the last government. Even if you think those are all 90% possibilities, it's still only a 45% possibility that the whole thing works. You're absolutely right. So do you notice how that thing about the rebels having a 45% chance, notice how that wasn't what we would call like a question. It wasn't like the lead up to a question. It was just some weird made up stat. Well, apparently I love this construction because I let it loose on security expert Jay Ulfer too. For that to have worked, here's what we or the United States needed to have gone right. One, pick the right rebels. You hear this, the good rebels. That is not a 100% chance. Maybe you pick wrong. Maybe some people misrepresent themselves effectively arm the good rebels, right? Have those effectively armed good rebels defeat the incumbents? Have the good rebels government be able to sustain itself and be better than Bashir al-Assad's government? I mean, at every point along the lines, you have to say, even if you think it's a 90% chance for those five steps, if you do the math, I just threw out 90, but that winds up only being a 45% chance of succeeding. Right, right. Yeah, Yeah. and And, I don't think people take take those discounts along the way. Yeah, and you, the scenario you just described, to a certain extent, is uh, kind of like what happened in Iraq. And, you know, I even tried to book on this segment. I wanted to book a talk about arming the rebels and how often that works. And, Andrea, I believe you have the paper trail on this. Who did we try to get on the show for this one? Well, you first reached out to Will Dobson on September 2nd, right. asking for ideas, and uh-huh. kind of like vetting the idea. And he recommended Max Boot. Boots, yeah, he'd have been a good guest. Yeah. Wait, we haven't interviewed Max Boot yet. What happened? Yeah, Boots person Harry emailed me <laughs> to say thanks for your request. Uh-huh. He has deadlines and travel. Mm. Gideon Rose, did we ask him to come on? Yeah. All right, so we, we definitely tried. We tried to have an interview. We tried to get this point somehow into the show. No problem. One day we will explore the question, does arming the good rebels ever really work? It's an honest question. Maybe it worked in the Philippines or with the Barbary Pirates. I can't remember. Well, guess what? This week, the New York Times lead story, they obtained a still classified CIA document which looked at arming the rebels and found that doesn't work. In fact, the best case, the best example of arming the rebels was the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which basically birthed Osama bin Laden. That was the big success stories. Just listeners, believe me, I so badly wanted to scoop the New York Times. We were asking the right questions. I had math, made up math on my side. I kept trying to make the point. It just didn't come together. So now in that spirit, I want to preemptively get in front of another story. This is going to happen and then it's going to pass the spy because everyone we asked wouldn't talk about it. I'm going to just say it now. You ready? coconut water is going to crater. This thing's a fad. There is no way that our children will be drinking coconut water. And now the lobster. But first, a word from our sponsor. Actually, not our sponsor, but Red Lobster. It's a dish they're promoting. It's called 
Endless Shrimp. America's favorite Endless Shrimp is back. People wait for this promotion all year long. Now, as you listen, just ask yourself, what do they mean by endless shrimp? If a shrimp is endless, or not even a shrimp, shrimp, as in the entire category of decapod crustacean, if they're said to be endless, what cannot reasonably be asserted of them? Check out the statement at the end of this commercial. Red Lobster's endless shrimp is now. We would never miss endless shrimp. But it won't last forever. But not for long. When they said endless shrimp, I didn't think they meant a physically large shrimp so lengthy as to extend to the horizon. I actually did consider, but then rejected the possibility that they had grown a shrimp that folded back on itself, like the human centipede of shrimp, a sort of Mobius shrimp giving the impression of endlessness. But no, I didn't think that's what they meant. What I thought they meant by endless shrimp is that you can eat a lot of the shrimp. In fact, you could do so endlessly. But in that commercial, a 30-second spot, they snuck in there, not for long. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into the 30-second commercial in the three-word phrase. What Red Lobster then did was they cut a 15-second commercial, the only point of which seems to emphasize and undercut the claim of endlessnessness. Here's endless shrimp and soon, the year's largest variety, like new spicy sriracha shrimp or Parmesan shrimp scampi. As much as you like any way you like, but it won't last long. As much as you like, but it won't last for long. They assume I don't like that much. What are you going to do, right? Paula Abdul was not, in fact, forever your girl. Sean Connery played James Bond in Diamonds Are Forever, was immediately replaced by Roger Moore in Live and Let Die, the very next film in the franchise. So we are defining definitiveness down, except in one area, my friends, the Lobstar. These awards have been known to appreciate in value, inversely proportional to a Honda Accord. They increase by a third as soon as you crawl them off the lot. Our third greatest listener of this Antan Tweg, Amanda Waldo, who emailed me some great banana facts because we were talking about slipping on a banana. She told me that slipping on a banana started when we had different kinds of bananas. It was a variety called the Gros Michel or the Big Mike. So I immediately identified with this banana. The variety was wiped out by disease. And in the 1950s, production shifted to the Cavendish, which is the banana we know today. The Gros Michel was apparently larger and tastier than the Cavendish, and it had a more slippery peel. When we joke about slipping on bananas, we're drawing on a cultural memory of a banana most people alive have never tasted and never will. Thank you, Amanda. Excellent email. You're the anti-penultimate lobster. The first alternate lobster, Josh Ford, signed someone up for Slate Gist, as we've been asking you during the pledge drive, and in fact sent a photo of his phone showing this. The other podcasts that I see are all ESPN podcasts, and I thought it was a photograph of a phone with the Gist and five other ESPN podcasts in a hammock, but given the company, maybe it's a basketball net. Thank you, Josh. The lobster of this Antan Twig, however, is Chase Bongiorno. I'm going to pronounce your name how an Italian might. Hey, Mike Pasca Pascami, my Twitter handle. I purchased a smartphone for my dad, installed Stitcher Radio, and subscribed him to at Slate Gist. Lobstar, pledge drive, you win, Chase. We didn't even ask you to buy any hardware. You did. You went above and beyond. Everyone else needn't actually buy a phone. Just find a friend with a phone, subscribe them to the gist. We actually, the last time I looked, we were number 17 in iTunes. It's not an ego thing. 
I explained yesterday why we're doing this pledge drive now to try to boost our iTunes ratings right now. And it's because the iPhone 6 just came out and the podcast app is native to that phone. So we think now is a good time if we could rise up to that top level of ratings that people will know about the gist. I mean, you're looking for a podcast to subscribe to. What's in the top 20? Now, because of your efforts, we're in the top 20. Please continue these efforts. Thus ends the pledge drive. Thus ends, or perhaps depending on how you look at it, begins the next Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is a single mom in Indianapolis trying to make it on her own. She has two daughters, one the scioness of the Mamas and the Papas, the other a future Van Halen. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He was adopted by a Park Avenue widower and his teenage daughter. Also, he has a fish named Abraham. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and please give us a review while you're there. Also, check us out on Stitcher. Our daily email can be accessed at slate.com slash gist email. We're on Yo. Download the app. Subscribe to podcast. We'll let you know via Yo. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email the gist at the gist at slate.com. I sleep on a couch in my living room. It's a pullout. I have siblings Thelma and Kid Dynamite. No one remembers Michael, but I do, or I am. Thanks for listening. It's amazing what's happened to TV. Okay. Did you say TV? TV. Like TV. Oy vey. Oy vey TV. That would be a good name for the next, right? If there's a Roku and a Hulu, why not an oy vey? Like only Jewish TV performers, which is to say TV performers. I'm thinking very seriously about that.